no. <laughs> That's an awful story. <laughs> I thought it was funny. It's an awful story masquerading as a funny story. Alright, I won't tell it anymore. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. I'm just sorry. I'm sorry that happened. Welcome to Wayward, episode 13. Today we're going to talk about leftism, what that is, and whether Christians can or should be leftists, and whether we are or should be leftists. I'm Zeb. I'm Kent. And I'm Mark. All right, guys, how have you been doing? Doing all right. See, tomorrow I'm going down to... I think they've been doing protests um, on the Capitol uh, down in D.C., all week, and they're going to do another one tomorrow night, and another one Thursday night. I think even with the bill possibly being stalled for now, I'm starting to go down to the one tomorrow night. Cool. The uh, health care bill. Yeah. Protesting that it didn't repeal all of Obamacare, or uh, protesting that actually the tax breaks aren't uh, generous enough. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> an, alter- yeah, an, alter- an alternative protest. No, I mean m- more of the uh, how about we don't leave anyone uninsured or without health care um or at the very least can we not you know take tens of millions of additional people off for really no justifiable reason that's you the nice way leftist. of putting what i what it, it is an extremely leftist thing and that's much nicer than some, i've seen uh some recordings of some of the other protests so far some of the things they've been chanting um <laughs> cool that should be good um I hit a new squat PR today at the gym, so I'm feeling good about myself. And everyone at my job has gone for a conference right now, so that's actually pretty fantastic. <laughs> I can just sit on Twitter all day and not have to ever worry about alt tab. <laughs> what about you, Kent? What have you been up to? Uh, not a lot that's new. Um, I'm, I'm officially going back to school full-time in the fall. Um, they, they've given me enough money that I can afford to do that. So awesome. that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So that's occupied a lot of my time. Uh, are you going to be working as well, or are you going to quit work and just go to no, school? Yeah, I'll have to work. I'm taking out loans, and we yeah. still have rent to pay and all that. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be working as well. I don't know how much. We'll see how balanced of all of my responsibilities works out. But, um, yeah, it's exciting. Um, so that's occupied a lot of my attention and energy. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, well, this week I finally decided to start my program to infiltrate the trad bros by uh, getting in, into a lifting program. I'm, I'm now a weightlifter. Sweet. Great. The the guy I hired from Weird Catholic Twitter uh, is into lifting and had been going to the, to the Y at five in the morning and sort of jokingly asking me to come along and I finally took him up and called his bluff and started going along and um Very cool. so this is how i'm gonna this is how i'm gonna work my way into that subculture and uh nice. and convert convert them all to byzantine woke byzantine catholicism oh great i gotta get on that mm. all right well let's get to the nice. topic at hand leftism what that is and how that relates to us and this has come up a lot on twitter lately and other um internet stuff that we're fans of or followers of And the podcast, Magnificast, had just had a little throwaway moment at the beginning of their last episode where they were reading a a reader um, review of their show, and a listener review, and the listener said they may be the only leftist Christian podcast that there is. And they left that assertion unchallenged, and that made me think, well, huh, is Wayward a leftist Christian podcast? I kind of thought of us as being, and we came out kind of at the same time and out of the same sort of subsection of Twitter that Magnificast did. So I thought, are we, or or should we be seen as that? And at the same time, there's this kind of cyclical um, 
uh, attack from the secular left on Twitter against Liz Brunig, who's a sort of well-known, popular Catholic writer and now mostly editor, who's popular in the, among the left and among the Catholics on Twitter and online. And a lot of secular leftists spend a lot of time arguing that she's not a leftist because she's pro-life and is a faithful Catholic. And so that creates a constant sort of cyclical argument about whether or not Catholics can be leftist or pro-life people can be leftist. And then also on the Catholic side, whether or not we should be leftist or whether Catholicism is actually antithetical or Christianity in general is antithetical to leftism. So I thought that'd be an interesting thing for us all to talk about, and we've been having a lot of chats about it, so let's get started. For sure. Yeah. So to begin, do we want to kind of specify um, what we mean when we're talking about leftism, leftism versus liberalism, and sort of a lot of the terms that get thrown around? Can we try and at least for the purposes of our conversations narrow it down to to what we actually mean? Because um, when I think about you know sort of leftic, leftist politics – I really, you know, the major theme running throughout all of them is that they focused on promoting equality. Uh, And so really, you know, leftist politics tend to focus on, you know, situations of oppression and unjust power structures. And, you know, apart from, you know, certain extremely radical forms, some sort of, you know, hierarchy um, is still a part of leftist politics but essentially a more just form um where power whether it's legal or economic or whatever else is not necessarily determined based on race or class or religion or sexual identity or any of these sorts of things but you know really so i think that the common theme there is that promotion of equality and opposition to sort of structural oppression and you know in that sense i think it it does you know encompass many uh different forms of you know what you actually count as oppressive structures um so we can get into you know whether you know religion or you know some of the catholic church is inherently reactionary but i think you know for a lot of people the sticking point with uh liz brunig being catholic is that the catholic church has wielded a tremendous amount of power historically um and not always justly and you can get into the catholic church versus specific catholics you can get into the magisterium versus you know what figures of the church are saying and all of that but you know i think any honest conversation we want to have uh about oppression leftist politics has to recognize um that being a Christian coming into it carries a certain amount of baggage um, and some positive as well that we'll get into it. But I think, I don't think it's essentially as entirely a trivial question as, you know, we sometimes put it forward on, you know, Twitter and, um, and other platforms. Yeah. It's certainly not a trivial question. Um, I wonder though, I mean, I've seen from um, avenues of contemporary left discourse um even ones that are oriented toward um, like third wave feminism specifically or, or um, critical race theory and stuff like that, uh, a deliberate shift away from a language of equality towards a language of justice, mm. which is interestingly a thing that I think that perhaps a, a, the Christian social tradition is, is maybe even more, um, is more germane to the tradition of, of Christian social theory. Um, so yeah, I, I I don't know. I don't want to jam up the works, but I wonder if um, how that tension between a language of equality and a language of justice plays into the conversation. Um, and if we assume a language of, of aspiring to equality, how much we're assuming about what can be admitted as leftism and what can't. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, I think... I, I think that's fair, and again, you know, I think there's just like with the hierarchy thing. I don't think most leftists anticipate a world. I, you know, um, I think it was like Isaac Asimov or someone had some, you know, kind of short story about, you know, try, you know, this attempt to have like absolute enforced equality where you know strong people are like given extra weight to carry around, and really <laughs> smart people are given like brain shocks every once in a while to 
that's like the dumbest most straw man version i think of that um and i think you're right that it's not just about that the, the the language i think you're right is shifting more to a matter of justice um so zeb your your social environment from what you've told us seems to be largely conservative from folks who would be kind of admittedly conservative yeah um, what goes into your sort of self your, your conscious self-identification with um the political left yeah, to me, I guess the core of it, and I'm not sure how, I mean, I think leftism or leftist is an, is an inherently imprecise or fuzzy term. And so its meaning shifts in over time and according to context. But to me, what would make me a leftist Catholic and a leftist distributist, which is the sort of political economy that I favor, is an acknowledgement that to have justice, there has to be a re redistribution of wealth and power as, as widely and evenly as possible or as, as, as practical, and that that needs to be done by the state. And so as opposed to like a libertarian distributist or uh, libertarian Catholic or also, as opposed to a sort of authoritarian, maybe monarchist, really reactionary Catholic, I don't think that justice can be left to either the market and just the free workings of um, enlightened rational actors or to traditional sources or locations of authority. But there has to be a deliberate and socially widespread action to distribute power and wealth, which is power, um, to all the people in order to achieve true justice. So that's the extent to which I would identify as left. And I don't know, maybe that does not actually make me a leftist, but I think it sets me apart from people who identify more expressly as conservative or as, or as right wing, at least in the context that I'm um, interacting in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that's, that's pretty critical. Um, we touched on in kind of our preparatory discussions the notion that these are kind of tribal designations. And I think that um, when I look at the express positions of um, self-described leftist, there are some things that I, uh, they have in common with, with me and there are things that they don't. Um, but I think my identification with the left camp has a lot to do with um, my relationship to the right <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and my lack of interest in um, pitching my tent on the, on the political right. And uh, yeah. And I think we, you know, we should also distinguish when we're talking about leftists um, and conservatives is also leftists and liberalism um, where in this country, especially it's, it's not always so clear for some people uh, the difference between the idea of leftist politics and liberal politics, in part because America in particular just has not had a strong left in decades, if it ever really had that powerful of a left. You know, Zeb, you noted that, and at its outsets, you know, I think liberalism in the Enlightenment sense was, you know, very much tied to anti-establishment politics but now with sort of what we think of as liberal politics in this country especially um in economic matters um and just watching as a matter of practice how fast uh we, we've seen liberals kind of turn into the uber patriots sort of thing that you know what i was used to seeing from the right during the iraq war and all of that leftists are also not necessarily what we would think of as political liberals um where liberals might share you know leftist sort of sentiments uh, when it comes to matters of oppression of you know race or gender or sexuality um, when it comes to material goods liberals are essentially laissez-faire 
the the freer the market we can manage, the better. We might have to put some restrictions on it, but the goal is to have as free a market as possible. Um, and there's, I think, you know, there there is a fair amount of Calvinist thought underlying, which is kind of like what Max Weber was going at with the the Protestant work ethic. Um, that poor people probably deserve to be poor is kind of the underlying assumption that they didn't work hard enough or they, you know, didn't bring the right talents, whatever it was, and that's a shame. But liberalism still does hold that that underlying current, and it's become increasingly apparent, especially in this country. I think. Um, I think a lot of leftists see sort of liberal politics as embodied by the Democrats as kind of a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. So, what is the essential difference or the core? thing that separates a liberal from a leftist i think it's a matter of class-based analysis i think to be a leftist you have to be opposed to capitalism like to be a leftist in this in our society like that is i think the one absolute non-negotiable thing Hmm. yeah well i think this is sort of where things get complicated and become a little more unclear and you see the kinds of um frustrated conflicts that arise in the kind of conversations that we're a part of where I think that generally, I mean, a a liberal throws his weight behind capitalism um, because he believes in liberty, right? That's the, that's, he believes in, in personal and political and economic liberty. Um, And in some sense, that's not a, a different underlying set of values. Um, from the one that a, that a leftist might have, right? Because certainly emancipation is a principle that's highly valued in, in, in leftist discourse. Um, but the sort of taxonomy, it seems to me, becomes very complicated when, for example, um, Roman Catholics who are interested in the, the church's, the social magisterium, um, are take an anti-capitalist position with very little interest in... Um, anything that might be called emancipation, except perhaps um, a kind of emancipation from an unjust labor relation, uh, from unjust Mm. labor relations, right? There's very little interest in liberty for its own sake. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is where to me, uh, to me, leftist or, or left makes more sense as a modifier of something else than as a thing in itself. Because, I mean, for one thing, what it is to be a leftist has changed so dramatically over, um, whatever, two and a half centuries. But um, I would add one more thing to your definition of, of liberal there, Kent, that it's about liberty but also individualism. Like the, mm. the good is located ultimately in the, in the individual and utility is located in the individual. And so that's, you know, when, when there's libertarian capitalists – they want every individual to have an equal starting ground, at least in, in legal terms, um, to then get all they can from their ingenuity and their hard work and everything. You know, all the good um, Protestant Catholic, I mean, Protestant capitalist <laughs> uh, virtues. But I think there's also a there's a left liberal who still sees goods being realized completely individualistically who is in favor of the emancipation of the individual and the fulfillment of the individual according to whatever their desires are. And so it's kind of a relativist about what is the good or the natural end. I mean, they might say there is no natural end, but what is the good for any person is defined by what they want, but who wants that for everybody equally to be achievable on economic as well as political and legal grounds. And so they're leftists in the sense of being egalitarian when it comes not only to um, opportunity, but also to realization, but are still uh, essentially a liberal in being individualistic and oriented towards personal liberty, mm-hmm. where I think a, a Catholic who's following the social teaching of the church would be oriented towards, of course, um, sanctity and, and God and to justice as, as a God-given um, sort of abstraction to be to be sought after as a people and would have some sense of things being realized and goods being realized in community 
and that community being a thing in itself, not just uh, an a, a aggregation of individuals. And that's very non-liberal. That's anti-liberal. Right. And I think likewise in secular, there are some secular leftists who have a similar sense of goods being realized by solidarity as a community, not as a just as an aggregation of individuals. And that's um, that's a distinction that I don't see made a whole lot in the at least in the among the secular leftists that I run into or see addressing these things. But I think there is a division there that goes um, maybe unclarified a lot of the time. Yeah, within within the secular left, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, that's very interesting. I, th- I think that's certainly very pronounced and, and perhaps consciously so in anarchism. There are camps within anarchism that, that self-consciously understand themselves to be individualist or just collectivist or whatever. Um, but I see, yeah, I, th- I think that's that's little addressed, maybe outside of that bubble. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you could see a sort of pretty clear distinction. It might not be mentioned, but you can see it in like the um, Democratic Socialist of America crowd, the people who were in there before Bernie Sanders and the people who came in after, mm. and the people who came in after having been liberals and, and disaffected Democrats who got turned on by Sanders' message of a little bit of a more radical program of redistribution and of economic justice, but who still were bringing in a very liberal, individualistic, and freedom-oriented value system versus the more um, long-term, well-formed Marxists, basically, who have a much more class-based analysis. Yeah, that, that brings us to a distinction that I wanted to make was what I see as three really different uses of leftism or or leftist. And one is as describing ideology, which is what we've been mostly talking about so far. And there's, you know, tons and tons of theory. And of course, people who have whole careers in the scholarship of that theory, everything from the pre-Marxist like um, Voltaire and Rousseau all the way through Marx and the socialists that followed him and into postmodernists and lots of things that you can read and debate about that. But then there's leftism as practice. And I don't think anybody would want to say that you have to ascribe to a certain ideology or be informed about any of this theory to be practicing leftism. And I think Mm -hmm. obviously unionism is the most obvious and down-to-earth example of leftist practice that Uh probably for a lot of people very active in leading or organizing unions have little or possibly no theory background, but are doing the work that leftists leftists want to see done, which is devolving power to the people and fighting against inequality and injustice and exploitation in real-life ways. And then the third way would be leftism as just a, a way of association of, of sort of forming tribes to define yourself as part of an in-group and against an out-group, which mm-hmm. is the most annoying and stupid <laughs> form of leftism and therefore the one most talked about. But but internationally, that's kind of an interesting um, expression of, of leftism as a kind of, I don't know, phenomenon. Right, because it's a discourse that's inhabited by by all kinds of organizations internationally. Um, a, uh, uh, a friend of the show, I guess I should say, uh, has commented on our stuff as Oswald, uh, famous <laughs> Oswald influencer. Go on, wayward. Uh, has <laughs> had said a while back uh, something about um, how. The Iranian Revolution is a demonstration of the fact that right-wing populism can work, um, which is a really strange thing to say, <laughs> because the Iranian uh, the Iranian government thinks of itself as a left-wing institution, right? They really? they they talk about themselves contra-reaction. Um, now they they were not the furthest left um, faction in the revolutionary coalition, the, the, the party that won out. Um, and, and perhaps it's 
purely strategic, and it, it very well may be. I'm not the most well-educated on, on Iranian politics. But there's certainly a sense in which the, the, the Iranian government inhabits leftist discourse mm. and, and, and wields a kind of leftist identity um, as a way of... I mean, you, you know, they're positioned against, for example, the Saudi government um, and against the you know the U.S. government and against Israel and um, and certainly against the 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 previous Iranian monarchy um, and so they they use the language of the left to sort of and certainly a lot of kind of uh, I mean they're popular amongst tankies right Iran and Syria are, and you know uh, sweet boys. <laughs> but Assad is a Baathist. I mean, he's not an Orthodox Baathist. Right. He's, but, yeah. His, his dad did a lot to sort of dismantle um, the actual socialist platform of the Baath Party. But they, they nonetheless inhabit a kind of leftist discourse and, and position themselves in that way. Right. Well, I mean, I think most of that is a matter of anti-imperialism. So this right, is exactly. um, this is this is third world. This is third worldism, right? It's, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if uh, if like Baathism and like the Iranian Revolution would be called third world. Well, I wouldn't think, I, I, no, I'm not thinking of, that, yeah. but I'm, I'm thinking of res, of sort of pro-leftist responses to someone like Assad. Yeah, exactly. Totally. Where, you know, supporting supporting Assad is, what it's really about is it's about opposing, it's opposing imperialism. And it's the only, it's the only real horseshoe theory that works. Is <laughs> tankies and reactionaries both love Assad. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a great illustration of the difference between leftist and liberal, because no liberal could support um, the Iranian Revolution or Assad. Could if we're getting oil. But the leftist them. could. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm not, well, I don't think true. I'm wrong. That's yeah. true. But I, um, yeah, ideologically. ideologically yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, pragmatically, they will uh, find ways. But, but I mean, I think. I mean, you could argue that I think you know the anti-imperialism of the the third world is is you know a you know, a matter of, you know, practical, I, I'm sure if you really got, like, if you really managed to corner them and get them on specifics, you could get them to, you know, on an individual action scale are not good. Um, but I mean, this is like the underlying thing with the tankies in the Soviet Union, is that the, the project of building socialism in, you know, in one country is so essential and opposing Western imperialism is so essential that, you know, any attempts to undermine or criticize it must be opposed. And I don't think that's something that's unique to third worldism or leftism or right. really anything. You can find that pretty much anywhere. Right. Well, it is a very potent kind of anti-individualism. It's about the arc of mm -hmm. history is, is really what matters. Yes. And, and putting devo the devolution of power and of exploitation first even above the individual rights or fulfillment or desires of the people under the um, the favored side of that conflict. Yeah, and I think, you know, while we're on the subject of third worldism and all these sort of things, like this is something that leftism is notorious for, for been plagued with, by infighting. And... I think it's a pretty universal thing. <laughs> you think <laughs> so? Okay. Among people who think they're the true right believers, like the fallings out that you can see in the alt-right when you look into it, or even there was just, oh, yeah. you know, uh, Kent and I are in the Solidarity Party, the American Solidarity Party, which um, some, <laughs> it, well, this is a point of contention itself, but some in it would say is a centrist party, centrist third party. Some of us, <sighs> number one, hate that. <laughs> it, there was just a convention this past weekend, and the amount of Infighting denunciations that happened. <laughs> so I mean, I think it's just a, a matter of. Okay, and I'm yeah. sure the same thing happens in at least in the back room of like the true believers and the Democrats and Republicans of like some dumb county of every state in America. But I mean, I I think also you know not to put the the ASP down, but I think there could be also something that the more removed the group is from power, the easier it is easier it is for it to fragment. Yeah, well, number one, it attracts the cranks, and you see yeah. that in the left, in the alt right, in the ASP, anything that's a French movement attracts the cranks who are fighters. Sorry, Mark, what was your last point? Oh, I was thinking that um, 
you know, with a lot of these groups that the more removed they are from power and the more sort of theoretical I see, yeah. a lot of it becomes, the, the, the easier it is for the group to schism. And this is kind of the difficult thing with, you know, throwing around accusations of purity politics. It's because sooner or later you have to actually say, no, this is what we believe in and we're not going to compromise on this. Um, which some political parties in America might say, actually, no, we might have to compromise on literally everything <laughs> and just see what happens, see if it works out. But, you know, I mean, any any group with any sort of, you know, any sense of self-respect has to have, you know, some defining, this is who we are, this is who we are not. Sure. You know, we're not going to endorse this, we're not going to support this. But I think the more theoretical it is, the easier it is to feel the... Um, To, you know, to, to, to feel like those divisions are broader than they, than they actually are. And, you know, one of the things that frustrates a lot of, you know, more radical leftists about the DSA is that the DSA will pretty much take anyone who's not a Leninist. But, you know, but I mean, that, that, you know, they, you know they, they are trying to build a big tent leftist movement, which... Yeah. You know, for on one hand, yes, I understand that, you know, it does make it easier for, you know, sort of establishment politics to creep in and, you know, for reactionary forces to gain strength and kind of, you know, hinder the movement. But on the other hand, like, if you want to get absolutely anything done, there is some truth in the fact that, like, you're going to have to work with people you don't 100% agree with. Right. And you just, um, I, you know, I don't really feel more than anything. I like the DSA because I get a lot of news about a lot of things going on and most things i go to like there's more groups than just the dsa there but the dsa is great for like you know sure. pushing out you know like making people aware like organizing groups people to go to protests about workers rights or about the health care bill like that that sort of thing well so i something that occurred to me is that when you're talking about um the sort of generational divide that you've observed in the dsa um, at least from the outside is that it it may be a consequence of of kind of the way that a, a vocabulary of solidarity has been expunged from kind of our our political life. Um, it's it's just very difficult to build coalition coalitions presently um, because it's 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 difficult. And I don't know you know labor history for example well enough to be able to speak to um, the question of what's different about our present predicament from, you know, for example, previous labor movements to say why coalition building is, is more difficult now. If it is, I mean, that's, that's really my hypothesis. But it just seems that, that that solidarity is just not a part of our political imagination. And, and the, the idea of the coalition is not really a part of our political mm -hmm. imagination at current. And I, I think the DSA may be doing a good job of it. I, I, I don't know. Um, it, was, it was my hope that... that Solidarity Party would be would do a good job of it. I think that it is to a certain degree. I think that it is it's a pretty interesting and effective coalition party uh, as far as it goes. Um, but I don't know. The, it's limited. I mean, all of it's it's, it's not it's tough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think something that's really changed in the last well almost hundred years since the heyday of union organizing and of, of an American left. It's just that society is so much more fractured in every way. I mean, there's not ethnic neighborhoods and uh, ethnic ties, and that used to be a way for organizers to get people together was to go to all the all the Polish people working in the coal mine, and you'd not only have the fact that they worked in the coal mine, but they, that they also celebrated all the same holidays. They spoke the same same language at home. They had the same authority figures outside of their workplace. And in the in the workplace too, you are changing jobs every two or three years in America now instead of yeah. sweating it out in a mm -hmm. crappy job in a coal mine for fifty years. And so you don't know as many people, you don't have stronger ties to a place, it's harder to organize. We've got to organize person by person now instead of sort of community by community. And that experience of being so fragmented has forced us to create individualistic identities that are largely 
um, dependent on setting ourselves apart from other people around us. And so the easiest thing to do to strengthen your own identity is to denounce somebody who's, you know, one degree of leftism too far away from you and say, that's not what, that's what I'm not right there. That's what I'm not that guy. It's worth mentioning, I suppose, since we're talking, if, if we're talking about coalition building, that I think one of the difficulties is that um, building a coalition with the mainstream of the left, mm-hmm. which is thoroughly rooted in an atheist tradition. Um, oh, yes. I mean, you know, Kevin Kevin made the point a couple of months ago, right, that like, and I'm not very well read in Marx, so I'm kind of relying on, on him for this, is that for Marx, materialism is opposed to um, idealism, right, rather than religion, right? It's, it's opposed to a kind of German philosophical tradition's interest in the relationships between spirit and idea and all of that, as opposed to, you know, metaphysical commitments yeah. generally. But regardless, socialists have historically been uh, at least non-religious. Um, not universally, of course. Mm-hmm. I was pleased to see a, a, a reference to Christian socialism in um, screw tape letters. Um, but but certainly the the tradition broadly, especially the Marxist tradition, is a, is a pretty thoroughly atheistic tradition. So a coalition with Marxists, with socialists, with with the mainstream of the left, is a coalition that you're building with uh, with avowed atheists. Mm-hmm. Right. But it seems to me that you could look at this the same way that a Christian looks at the scientific tradition, sure. where the scientific method is a materialistic method in the sense that it brackets any spiritual considerations and just looks at what we can learn from studying the mechanics of materials. And with, um, at least with Marxism and Marx's analysis of history, he wants to bracket off anything that is not material and look at how history can be explained through purely material um, explanations. And a Christian can do that too. Like we can say, we believe in all the spiritual reality that the church teaches, but we also acknowledge the material reality and want to see what we can learn from it, how it explains what, how things got to be the way they are, and how it can be used to advance an agenda that is fitting in with our Christian morality. Sure. And, and that and agenda might be very similar or have at least some similarity, some commonality with atheistic leftists who we can then work together with in the same way that a Christian uh, scientist who is a Christian would work with a scientist who is an atheist on a scientific problem. Certainly. And I think not only could we do that, I think we should. We must. Um, but as a practical matter, there are facets, facets of, a, of a socialist platform, a secular socialist platform, that would uh, cause us some difficulties. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And, and we can, we'll get to some of those specifics Mm-hmm. Here, correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, but my understanding of socialism as opposed to communism is that it starts with the realization that that all property inherently is a social relationship that is defined and determined by the state, and that the the state, um, if if we're living in a true democracy or a democratic, in a descriptive term, like sort of democratic-ish society has the ability and authority to allocate that property however it would want to. And so the people could choose and are free to and perhaps ought to choose to distribute it widely. But that even in a capitalist society, um, property is not like a pre-existing thing. A capitalist owns this property only because the state says so. And, and the only reason the state says so is because in our state, the capitalists have conspired and formed an allegiance to run the state and run it in such a way that it continues to allocate more and more property to them. Um, and so socialism is starts with the, that realization that property is not an inherent naturally occurring thing, but a socially construct, constructed thing that we are at liberty if we can at least seize the reins of power to distribute differently. And the socialist would say we should distribute it very differently, that it just like um, the franchise, the vote is distributed on a completely e- equal basis among um, 
citizens, eligible citizens. So property ought to, ought to be distributed a lot more equally. No, I, mean, I think I think um, I might quibble with the distribution of the votes, but at least in theory, yeah. Um, no, I, th- I think you are right. I think that is actually a helpful way um, for Christians who might be open to, you know, when they hear people talking about, you know, a you know, more just economy, but, you know, feeling some reservations about socialism. I think that's a good way to start to start looking at it, that property. Yes, yeah, property is not a natural a natural thing. Um, right. And, and you, at least in the Catholic Church, the teaching is that. Number one, everything ultimately belongs to God. That God has entrusted humanity exactly, altogether yeah. with all the goods of creation for the good of mankind as a whole. And how we accomplish that is up to debate and prudential judgment. But that seems to fit right in that that true ownership is not inherent. Like it's mm-hmm. right allocation of of property or real allocation redistribution cannot be theft if it's done by mm-hmm. a legitimate state authority because property ultimately does not belong to the individual, but it belongs to God and is entrusted by God to humanity as a whole. And if the state is acting as the valid authority um, for a society or a people, it is the thing that in fact does even under capitalism and under Christianity must decide how that property is distributed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well put. It's good. Well, shall we get into uh, should we get into it then with whether Christians can or should be should be leftists? Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Um, we'll talk to you next week. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, okay. So as as someone who's less uh, emphatically convinced, it's worth saying that for that these are not questions that stand outside of the Christian intellectual tradition or the, mm-hmm. or the theological tradition, right? These are from the very beginning of the church or, and even, you know, in, in the old Testament are, are theological concerns, matters of political economy are, are theological concerns and are things that we have to engage with and, and, and have to, it demands our, our theological attention. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so whether we ought to accept I think there's maybe an impulse amongst uh, Christians who consider themselves conservatives to take for granted the fact that um, the liberal order and the capitalist order are in some sense natural, uh, mm-hmm. that these, these don't belong to the sphere of, uh, of Christian discourse. And they are, but, but, but I think it's, it's evident from the tradition of the, from the history of the church and from scripture that these are, they're matters that ought to be interrogated theologically. Um, sorry. No, I mean, they, yeah, I mean, I think that's cause that's where kind of I want it to be as you know, great place to start is you know, let's look at what Scripture says. Um, and I think you can find you know plenty of you know cases in both the Old and the New Testament um, about matters of class relationships. Um, you know the Mosaic law is filled with instructions about um, the, you know, the poor and the the alien. And in our sort of liberal order, we've kind of privatized the notion of charity. So where it's a matter of um, personal choice. Um, like I see this criticism a lot with uh, healthcare, where, you know, like being forced to pay the government give the government money to then pay for people's health care rather than, you know, the, you know, the personal choice of, you know, giving money to pay for someone's GoFundMe. Um, but if we're really going to take our faith seriously, we're going to take scripture seriously, God commands charity and care for the poor. And, you know, in liberalism and in capitalism we have privatized our religious practices so that we now conceive of the commandments of god as at least in the public sphere more optional than the commands of the state um like in the old testament the mosaic law like that was essentially state law 
that you have to leave this much for, you know, the the poor who are foraging, you know, in and around your field in the Jubilee year. Um, I think Magnificus did a good bit about the Jubilee, you know, pointing out about the Jubilee year. Yeah, Dean was you know, good on this. You know, mass redistribution of property every seven years. You know, apart from the Old Testament, the New Testament, you know, the early church was much more radical than what most communists want. They shared personal property. You know, in the Acts of the Apostles, I mean, people are struck dead for yeah. holding back. And in essence, if you're literally struck dead by God. <laughs> you know? um, and, you know, there's plenty in the early church fathers about, you know, the duty to to the poor. Um, but, you know, the I think the prefer, preferential option for the poor um, in Catholic social teaching um, is very similar to, you know, leftist notions of not just redistribution, but um, prioritizing, you know, oppressed and marginalized voices. I think there's, you know, huge similarities, um, not just in the the ideologies but in the actual practices and cultures potentially possible between between the left and between christianity yeah and, and this is this kind of thing is where i would argue that um the that christian true christian understanding of justice and property relations is in a lot of ways more left than a lot of the most avowed leftists like i think i mean i don't really think that the pro life position couched in a overall leftist agenda is is more leftist than the pro-choice left um, leftist position because it's doing that very thing it's prioritizing the most vulnerable um, you know the unborn as a class yeah are more vulnerable and impoverished than anyone else in the world could be yeah quite radically yeah mm-hmm. and by prioritizing them um, above above the born and defending them first we are i would say being extremely in in the vein of that um devolving power and of taking the side of the disempowered but i think it's fair to say that that only stands up as a leftist agenda if it's couched within also opposing treating women as a second class right who are disempowered by just their biology and the consequences of sex that they have that men do not have. And so as a society, insisting that pregnant women, especially those who are, whether through their own choice or not, are pregnant when they don't want to be, are afforded every possible benefit and opportunity to um, to get through that experience with the least sacrifice or loss or harm or pain. And that we all bear that as much as we can alongside them and for them. And that's, right, where, I mean, that's I, where the leftists can criticize us and say that we're turning women into into a class who is who is oppressed or exploited. And I think we do – we have to take that seriously and respond to that by including that and undoing that as much as is physically possible in our agenda. No, I think that's that's definitely right. And that is – out of all things, probably the most difficult sticking point that is going to persist between the Christian and secular left. Um, yeah, and the, the best that I, that you know I've ever been able to say to anyone is, as long as we have a society and a political and economic system that punishes people for being able to give birth to children, um, you're for one, you're never going to eradicate abortion and it is going to be a matter of it, it is going to create a power imbalance between yeah people who can bear children and people who who can't and it's become increasingly clear over the years that a lot of the sort of mainstream conservative opposition to abortion is a matter of a political playing chip rather than any like deeply held belief um you know when you know, they began to, when you know when they seeded um, opposition to abortion in cases of rape, it reveals really where their mindset is. Is that well, the woman didn't do anything wrong, so I guess you know she doesn't, she shouldn't have to bear the child. Right. Like that's it's just it's the most you know repugnantly revealing thing ever. I don't know if there was ever anything to that rumors, but there were some of those rumors bouncing around not too long ago with pushing through the healthcare that 
some of the Republican uh, congressmen were open to compromising on abortion if they could push through some of these these health care, mostly alterations rather than reforms. The worst I, possible I think, scenario. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I think that's, you know, where at least hopefully in a matter of coalition building, we can both agree with secular leftists and, you know, begin to draw in serious and concerned Christians to a leftist movement to say this, the system that perpetuates this needs to be stopped. And it, you know, it's, it's not just something that needs to be reformed or tweaked, but this is actually, you know, an antagonistic force in our world that needs to be opposed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the big um, criticisms of leftist thought that comes from Catholicism, a lot of Catholics and can be twisted out of the social encyclicals, is that leftist thought advocates class war or class conflict and class war in its most extreme form. And I think the best answer to that is um, it doesn't advocate it. It recognizes that it's happening and that it's being perpetrated by the capitalist class. They are very literally making war on the working class and and on the poor and especially, most especially on the third world workers. And so any war against the capitalist class, and not like going out and vigilante killing particular capitalists or bombing banks or something, but using political means, um, at least for now, any rhetoric of class conflict is purely defensive and by any reasonable interpretation of just war would be it it would be a just war um so i I don't think that that that, you'll hear that a lot that criticism that the leftist approach advocates conflict between the classes it does not advocate it except as a means of defense what it does is acknowledge that it is happening and must be dealt with sure and i think you're you're dead on there um and that's a that's a reasonable way of of um making the leftist discourse amenable to Christianity. Um, but I think there's also maybe a conversation that needs to be had about the principle of, of hierarchy, perhaps, or about uh, the distribution of power, as opposed to a just distribution of wealth or something like that, and, and of the tensions between the two realms of discourse that we're trying to reconcile here. Um, because I think Christianity has always, um, if not advocated for, at least recognized the, the, the necessity of some kind of taxes, some kind of um, structure, kind of necessarily a hierarchical structure that makes the, the, the housekeeping of the church or of the body politic uh, run smoothly. And that necessarily involves some kind of, uh, some kind of pyramid structure, right? Like if you acknowledge the necessity or, or at least the reality of, of the the fact that like the priesthood and the episcopacy are divinely instituted, then you you implicitly acknowledge this, right? That yeah. like that there's there's that 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 God at, at at the very least recognizes that in our fallen state we need some kind of taxes to make things run. Um, and I don't think that when we talk about classes, what, at least from 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 the position of, of leftist, leftist discourse, we aren't necessarily talking about the abolition of a kind of division of labor that abolishes uh, a kind of governing body. Um, we're talking about the abolition of classes. We talk about the abolition of. We're we're talking about the abolition of an exploitative relationship as it pertains to labor. But nonetheless, there's a strong current in the leftist discourse that, that advocates for the abolition of really any kind of uh, social distinction or imbalance of power whatsoever. And I think that that's very difficult to reconcile with um, the Christian tradition. I think some people do it, but I think it places them outside of the realm of orthodoxy. Well, yeah, and also there's a tremendous amount of very grisly history of the attempted extermination of um, exploiter classes, which, you know, just as we must reckon with the history of Christian exploitation uh, and enshrinement of exploitive power, we have to, if we're going to be leftists, also in some way reckon with that history of um, Mm -hmm. the the murderous extermination of 
so-called um, class enemies. Sure. But I think that as, as, as this conversation pertains to the issue of abortion, a lot of the leftist discourse surrounding abortion has to do with the abolition of hierarchical relations between the sexes. And mm-hmm. I just, I, mm-hmm. I, I, it's, it seems to be one of the most tenacious difficulties in reconciling leftism and Christianity is, is this one in particular. Well, right. Yeah. This is the difference, I think, between the leftist liberal and the leftist Christian, or I mean, it doesn't even have to be Christian, but a different kind of leftist is that the liberal sees liberation as the good in itself, but that leaves open the question, liberated from what and liberated for what? And um, I think the, the liberal would say liberated for whatever she wants, liberated from whatever she doesn't want. But that's not a real answer. That, just on, in philosophical terms, metaphysical terms, that's not a real answer. And so our Christian vision would look to say women should be liberated from the forces that would make them, number one, make them pregnant when they don't want to be. Of course, obviously, sexual violence, but also um, social forces to be promiscuous to not want to have children when they're in a relationship that they otherwise would naturally want to have a child in, but also liberated from the forces that make having a child be in some way a loss of opportunity or um, true self-fulfillment, a loss of joy and happiness. And those are the material circumstances that we can change if we take in hand the reins of power through organization and change our social, political, and um, economic structure, we can liber- liberate, as, you know, as leftist Christians, we could envision liberating women from the forces that would make abortion seem liberating when in fact it is not. You know, from a, like a Christian metaphysical point of view, sin is not, cannot be liberation. That's not freedom. Right. It's in some way, it's enslavement to fear and desire. And so what we should be asking ourselves is what are the fears and desires that um, the sin of abortion is a form of enslavement to, and we should be trying to undo those forces. Well, yeah, I mean, I think this is where the overarching teleology of a non-materialist worldview can really help to enrich a lot of leftist discourse and thinking is that you know one, one speaks up that yeah there like you know like you're sort of saying like that there are there are human goods there are you know express purposes of human existence and a way to promote flourishing of both the individual human and humanity as a whole um, you know that adds a whole new I think you know very wonderful and exciting dimension to leftist politics because it starts to you know provide avenues to answer the question of well what happens after the revolution what what will that world kind of look like um because yeah like you say like everyone just being free to do their own thing is not really a practical or helpful helpful vision mm-hmm. um but you know i think that, and this is again you know i think a great way to win a lot of win a, lo- a lot of hearts of people you know like christians who might be dissatisfied with what they feel like, you know, the options of being given by, by our society are, you know, perhaps some guilt and doubt over some of the things that we do and condone that sort of thing is that there is a purpose that we are here to do. And there is a, you know, a clear flourishing for human beings and refusing to settle until we have a society that promotes that sort of flourishing is a great way to start your politics. And I think any serious investigation of, Christian ethics um, and you know scripture and church teaching is going to push you towards a lot of what we consider to be you know leftist politics. Yeah. You know I'm not. I assume most of our audience is probably Christian, so that's part of it. But I don't want to you know say that Christians have to do all the heavy lifting on this. But like yeah, I joined the DSA to be more involved with you know actions and all that. And yeah. Most of them are atheists, so where the hell are the Christians? What are you guys doing? Mm-hmm. Like, it's not my fault that these are the people I have to work with. 
Right. <laughs> and I'm sorry they're mean to you online, but like there's, you know, big things that I want to be a part of that I think are important. Yeah, yeah, that's tricky. And I don't know what to say to that. Um, Christianity in America has mostly been um, on, the, on a reactionary side of most issues. A lot, I mean, certainly a lot of the most liberating, progressive things that have happened in America, the civil rights movement, the abolitionist movement, have been spearheaded by Christians, but they weren't the majority of Christians doing that. I mean, there's just a certain amount of historical contingency owing to the cultural changes of the 50s, 60s, and 70s that set things kind of the way they are. And maybe that's just something that has to be grown out of. But but that's where we find ourselves now, you're right, where, of course, most Americans aren't involved in radical politics of any kind, but most Christians are not going to be even potentially interested in joining them because of of that history, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, wasn't that's... the true mark that wasn't the DSA founded by uh, Christian socialists? Mm-hmm. Michael Harrington. Yeah. I think by by the end of his life, he wasn't. I don't think he was a Christian anymore. Okay. Um, but I mean, he certainly when he found the DSA, he was. And I mean, there's no doubt that that you know was the basis of his politics. And there's there, yeah, there's a plethora of other Christians who have been involved with both the DSA and you know with leftist movements in this country. Like you say, I mean, some of the most inspiring and you know, whether it's just because it's just how, you know, fate and history has worked out or if it's something more explicit and malicious in our liberal order. But people forget that, you know, as strongly as um, King spoke out for racial justice, he also spoke out for economic justice and he understood that, you know, they were tied together. And when he was assassinated, he was there as part of a labor protest. Uh-huh. And that's what he was doing there. Just a heads up. I'm gonna to have to wrap this up soon. Yeah, I'm I think I think because we, we have we have a lot more. I think we could talk about with like the DUP and Bruder Hawk. We you know, like yeah, let's do it. So I think, yeah, I think next next time we'll delve we'll delve into uh, some specific topics. Um, but for now, I think we can just say a good night and we'll see you all next week. Sounds good. Sounds good. All right, Sounds good night, good. guys. All right, good, good night, thanks. guys. Keep your eyes on the prize. Hold on.